The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome to you all. This is another live Clubland Q&A around the planet here. My name is Andrew Lawton, in for Mark. Just after 3 p.m. North American Eastern Standard Time, we are at 4 p.m. in lovely St. John, New Brunswick, but uh, no... We are at 4.30, that means, in St. John's, Newfoundland, which is going to be on the Canadian trivia a little bit later. And what do we have across the ocean? 8 p.m. in Belfast and Cardiff. We have 9 p.m. in Munich and Nice. We have 10 p.m. in Kiev and Moscow. And, of course, if you keep going a little bit fast, you'll find 11.30 this evening in Tehran. And uh, what are we at in Kathmandu? I believe it is uh, 12.45 Saturday morning in the Nepalese capital. So uh, for all you night owls, we'll have you uh, let loose before long. But you deal with a quarter-hour time zone, so I think you're already a step ahead of the rest of us. And uh, we have Saturday morning, 6 a.m. in Sydney, 8 a.m. in Auckland. So hope you are enjoying your morning coffees while the rest of us are still getting ready for the big Friday night. Now, I know all of you are asking the question of where Mark Stein is. I assure you I was scheduled to be guest hosting this week uh, before he uh, was uh, sidelined by a little bout of illness this week. He will be back. He's a little under the weather. And I know we're all grateful to Patrick Christie's and Mark Dolan for holding down the fort on GB News throughout the week. You don't want to put me on television. So I get the benefit of guest hosting when there's no visual component uh, because otherwise that would actually, I believe, get about 17 Ofcom complaints within the first five seconds if my face were on television for more than just a uh, little guest hit. So uh, I know he appreciates all your kind words. He will be back before long, and I hope you will uh, bid uh, very much. I will. I would beg your forgiveness on the Canadian content. I usually come into this trying not to overload you with Canadian content, but then either all of the Canadians or the curious non-Canadians load up the question section when I'm guest hosting. So we end up with a disproportionate share of Canadian content. But I am happy to demystify for you, to the best of my abilities, the demented, deranged dominion that is Canada. And I will actually, I see, I say this, and the first question is from J.B. McKell. Hi, Andrew. I had a question about the Emergencies Act hearing. So this is as Canadian as it gets. I've been listening to your podcast, and recently the government dodged questions by invoking attorney-client privilege. Has anyone pursued the question of how the government can get away with that? If the government belongs to the people, there really shouldn't be a secret from the public, especially if it's criminal. Where is the concept of responsible government if the government can just say it's none of your business to the citizens? 
Well, first off, JB, thank you kindly for listening to my podcast. That's very nice of you. And yeah, so the, the backstory on this, and I spoke about this a little bit last week or two weeks ago, whenever it was, is that the federal government and Justin Trudeau invoked this wartime law called the Emergencies Act to deal with the trucker protests in February of this year. And at the end of it, there is this requirement in the law that any time a government brings it in, there has to be a full public inquiry, a public commission investigating it. So that has to happen within a year. That was happening. The hearings were happening over the course of uh, November and a little bit of October. And I was in Ottawa for bits and pieces of it covering it. And what ended up happening was it was supposed to be a fact-finding expedition. So this was supposed to be about what are the facts of the case? What happened leading up to this? And then, of course, the analytical point is, did this constitute a national emergency that was so grave, existing laws couldn't deal with it, and you needed to bring this in, which is the threshold that the government, uh, that the legislation sets out. Anyway, so what happened was by maybe a week into it, two weeks into it, it was apparent that there were no facts that supported the government's narrative. This idea that it was a violent insurrection, hate-filled, a tinderbox, a powder keg, it just didn't get supported by the facts that were put on. And like pretty much everyone who testified who came from a law enforcement background was like, yeah, this was a peaceful protest. No, there wasn't violence. No, there wasn't this, there wasn't that. All of these things, and, and one witness went through systematically, all of the things that are in the legislation to justify the Emergencies Act weren't there. So by the end of the six weeks of testimony, everyone just abandoned the idea of talking about the facts of the case, and it became a legal debate. And specifically, it became a legal debate about this one definition that exists in Canadian law about what a threat to the security of Canada is. Because you can't have an emergency without meeting the definition of a threat to the security of Canada. So they do what lawyers do. And instead of debating the facts, they debate the law. And it becomes this very, very niche definitional definitional issue that becomes the crux of this. So then the question becomes, well, it's one thing for the government to argue now that it has the legal justification to do this, but did it know that at the time? Did it have this case at the time? So what became, and this is where your, your question is coming from, JB, it became this debate about what legal advice the government got. And we had on the stand the attorney general of Canada. He was testifying. And before he even said a word, the government of Canada lawyer appearing before the commission chimes in and says, I would just like to remind you all that we are asserting solicitor client privilege, to use the Canadian term, solicitor client privilege, and any question about any legal advice or any conversations that this member of the cabinet had with government in the context of his role as the government's lawyer, he's not going to answer and I'll object to. But the problem is, is that this actually became and still is the big question mark around this case. Did the government, who had been advised by numerous people that it didn't meet the threshold, the situation didn't meet the threshold to use this law, what legal justification were they given that said it was okay? 
And JB's question is premised on, the, I think, a very reasonable idea here, which is that if the government is beholden to the people, why does the government get to assert uh, attorney-client privilege about anything? It's one thing if you're embroiled in litigation with the government, and obviously the government's legal strategy shouldn't, in theory, become public. Uh, but at the same time, when you're talking about a public commission, which is being done in a fact-fighting context, not an adversarial context, why does the legal advice that the cabinet of the country got to support something they did against the public, why does that get to be concealed? And Justin Trudeau's gotten up and down and said, oh, this is, we're the most transparent government in history, and we I'm here testifying, and we've let you have a look at cabinet documents, which are supposed to be secret, which, yeah, fine. But not the one section that has ended up becoming the crux of this case. And it's it's quite sickening. Now, I, as Mark always likes to remind people, and I guess I'll remind you as well, I had the distinct privilege of going up against the federal government in court in 2019. And the case, if you ever feel like reading Canadian legal cases, which I don't recommend, but you can, uh, you can look it up. The citation is Lawton v. Canada. And uh, Lawton won Canada lost, which is why Mark loves telling the story as a noted legal victor himself in a number of cases. But uh, the thing was, like at the time, you know, if the government had said, well, you know, it's we're, we're the government, we can't uh, pony up our internal legal deliberations, sure. But once I've already won, I would love to see what the government thought it was doing, taking away, in that case, my constitutional right to uh, practice journalism in this country. And in the context here, we're talking about the right of Canadians to see what the government uh, was doing, which I think should be front and center. And it was uh, it spoke volumes that the government was unwilling to present this. So I would agree. I mean, responsible government. We've supposedly got it in, uh, I think it was, what, 1840 is when... We kind of got it, and it took a couple of years to really sink in, but uh, apparently responsible government doesn't need to be responsible or even government for that matter. Uh, DD writes, oh, we've got some more Canadian content here. I, we're going to get to the non-Canadian stuff. I'm reading the questions in the order they come in. Uh, DD writes, what's this business about Justin Trudeau censoring the internet? Will you have to smuggle yourself into the U.S. to do your podcast? Well, it's interesting. You see, technically speaking, if you take the government at face value, which in Canada is not advisable either, you, it might actually benefit me in theory, because what's happening here is Canada, like the U.S. and the U.K., there are all these regulations that exist around TV and radio. And uh, you have, I mean, the U.S., uh, I think it's the FCC that does this. In Canada, it's the CRTC. And what happens here is if you want to set up shop as a TV station or a radio station, you've got to get your broadcast license. So what the government is trying to do is actually extend dramatically the influence of these regulations that exist for TV and radio stations to internet, to the internet. They want to regulate the internet. They want to regulate internet publishers, and they want to, by extension, regulate internet content creators. Now, there's all sorts of debate about whether they would go after some guy who runs a popular YouTube channel. Originally, they were saying yes, and then they were saying no, and then they were saying we're going to exempt news media, but then the question comes, well, how do you define news media? Because that's a bit of a 
big problem for this government. They don't re- legitimize journalists that aren't on their payroll, generally speaking. So it's become this huge thing. And there's actually been a fair bit of pushback from a lot of different sectors, not just, you know, your typical conservative libertarian types about this. Because what the government is doing is trying to bring the internet under its regulatory purview. And when anyone says, well, this is going to be censorship, the government says, well, no, it's not censorship. We're just modernizing. They use these nice little happy terms. We're modernizing the broadcast regulations. They don't apply to a broadband world. And they forget that people like the internet because they're getting away from the regulations. I kind of joke about it on this show from time to time, Canadian content, but it's actually, I should probably explain, a a running joke in Canada because our music stations, our radio stations, have for years been forced by law to play a certain amount of Canadian content. And there's actually a formal calculation of what constitutes Canadian content. And it's, it's actually amusing how you see artists sometimes try to circumvent this by becoming like extra Canadian. The line, the, they're, they're, MAPLE is the acronym, believe it or not, MAPLE. And it's M-A-P-L. They've dropped the E because, I don't know, budget cuts or something. And it's uh, music is the M. The music has to be composed by a Canadian. A is the artist. The music has to be performed by a Canadian. P is the performance, which is where the performance took place or where it was recorded. And L is the lyrics. The, The lyrics were written by a Canadian. And if you want to be Canadian content, you have to have two of those. So if you're a Canadian singer and you wrote the song and you wrote the lyrics, doesn't matter where you recorded it. If you're a Canadian singer who didn't write the music and lyrics, you have to perform in uh, perform it in Canada, I believe, to count as Canadian content. So I guess, you know, if you're a Canadian singer who's not a songwriter, you've got to book some studio time in Montreal, and then you're pretty much guaranteed Canadian radio airtime. And this is sort of a, a running joke, but now the government wants to do this with the internet. And they are not able right now to regulate what's on your YouTube home screen or what's on your Netflix home screen. So they say that we want to make sure there's a a guaranteed statutory amount of Canadian content on your YouTube homepage, on your Netflix homepage, on Twitter, maybe on Amazon Prime, who knows? And no one knows what this is going to look like. But they're basically, by virtue of having to amplify some forms of content, going to have to de-amplify others. And when you are an individual Canadian, this means that you're going to have to, what, register with the government as a Canadian content creator so that you can, you know, benefit from this? Like, I'm not expecting, like, I'm Canadian, I record my show in Canada, my music and lyrics, such as they are, are uh, non-existent, but if they, I'll sing a song on my show if I have to, and I'll get my little maple tag. I have a hard time believing that Justin Trudeau is passing legislation that's going to put my show on people's homepages. So it's only going to be certain types of content that are being recognized as sufficiently Canadian. Now, I mean, Mark Stein is Canadian. He's uh, got music. Is this going to be Canadian content? Can we start getting like mandatory Mark Stein content across the Canadian internet? I would get on board with C11, which is the bill that this is happening under, if that were the case. Although it also occurs to me that maybe making this the mandatory Stein bill is the way to get Justin Trudeau to kill the whole thing. 
I'm actually, the wheels are turning right now. I think we need like a little rebranding campaign and uh, start recording some PSAs. Like when B Bill C11 comes in, I'm going to have all Stein all the time. Or when C11 comes in, I'm going to get, you know, more Andrew Lawton content. When under C11, we're going to get more Ezra. We're going to get more Stein. I think this is actually great. And if it works, then we get more of this content. And if it doesn't work, then the bill gets killed. And I think it's actually a pretty great way to, uh, to work around this. All right. You have inspired me. You have inspired me, Didi. We are going to start rebranding this thing, and we'll do what the left does, and we will reclaim it. We will make this ours. Uh, mandatory Stein, I think all of you will get on board with here. Uh, Timothy writes, Andrew, Mark frequently spends segments interviewing women who had been horribly sexually abused by the Pakistani rape gangs throughout England. Does Canada have also have an immigrant ethnic group who treat white girls in Canada as mere objects to be sexually abused and discarded as a means of demonstrating a conquest of Canada? Perhaps other club members will share their knowledge on this matter by responding to this question in the comment section. Well, I mean, Timothy's question came with an open invitation. So if you do have experience, weigh in. The short answer is no. I, I don't actually see in Canada the same issues that you have in the UK and other European countries. I mean, we also don't have the issues of these sorts of ethnic enclaves to the same extent. I mean, we do have them. And certainly in the U.S., you look at places like Dearborn, Michigan, and there are parts of Canada as well that are these little pockets that seem to be more ethnically controlled than anything else. But no, I'm, I'm not aware. And I, I hope I'm not aware because it's not happening. And if it is happening, I hope it can be exposed. But I, I'm not aware of that happening in Canada. But I think there's a general point there, which is that, you know, a lot of the times people on the left in Canada like to, you know, say Canada is a nation of immigrants and a nation of multiculturalism, which, I mean, yes, we are a, a nation that is multicultural by design. I mean, it's, it's written into the law in Canada. But one interesting thing is, is that Canada has done a fairly good job with immigration generally generally. And I, I think Stephen Harper, who was the prime minister, did a, a very good job with his immigration minister, Jason Kenney, who went on to become the, the premier of Alberta. And one of the things they did is they, they really stressed language as being a, a prerequisite, one of the official languages of Canada. And also they, they had this system that uh, kind of measures you in terms of points. And there are points about your age, your language abilities, your capacity to work. And it was this point system that really became a very useful metric for immigration in this country because we were bringing in people that were going to contribute. And I, I think by and large, Canada did a very good job on that. But you fast forward to Justin Trudeau as prime minister, and he views diversity as our strength. That's his famous line, diversity is our strength. And he values diversity more than he values integration, more than he values any sort of Canadian value more than he values anything like that. He, he says diversity is the hill he wants to die on. So the interesting thing that you look at last month, the government of Canada, now Canada, I, let me just look this up right now, just, I don't want to give you outdated numbers, but Canada's population is about 30, 38 million, just over 38 million. Now by 2025, Canada is on track to bring in 500,000 immigrants per year. 500,000 immigrants per year. 
is what Justin Trudeau's plan is going to be. Now, this is a massive increase in what we've been bringing in, generally speaking. A massive increase. Generally speaking, immigrants in this country have been, you know, in the 200 to 250,000 a year. Uh, just, I think it was uh, between 2016 and 2021, so a five-year period, there were 1.3 million. So that's just over 200,000 a year. In less than a decade, that will have more than doubled. Now, a lot of people would look at this and say, well, what's the big deal? If you're against this, you must be racist. And it, it has nothing to do with race. I mean, I think I said in, in one of these programs that I actually don't particularly care whether someone moves to the country if they're there to make it a better place. And, and I think that is, the, I think, a view that most Canadians would probably embody. But when you start talking about such large numbers, the vetting always seems to go down because now we have a target. Now it's a target. Now it's a, it's a numbers game more than it is a game. I don't even like calling it a game, but it's a numbers game more than it is anything else because the government has said this is what it's going to do. It's like when they say they're going to plant, you know, two billion trees or whatever. Like it just, at a certain point, you just don't even care where you're planting them because you just have to meet that number. And I think that is a pretty important dimension here. And I just, want to just by virtue of uh, numbers here, talk about this ratio. So 500,000 is 1.3% of 38 million. So that's every year. I mean, obviously the Canadian population will change. I mean, between now and 2025, there are going to be, you know, another, I would say, you know, million immigrants of, of sorts in that two year period. But 1.3%. Now, why that is important is because you may remember the year of uh, the migrants in Germany, 2015. Germany brought in 1 million and at the time had a population of 80 million, which is 1.25%. Now, I am not a math person. I'm not a numbers person. I'm pretty confident about these calculations and don't like to go into numbers even further. But Canada is set to bring in a larger, just, just nominally large, I'll say just for simplicity, the same amount, but a slightly larger share of its population in immigrants in a year than Germany brought in in a year. The year it had all of the problems brought about by its immigration and migration program. And those numbers, I don't think are insignificant. Now, the circumstances are going to be different. In, in Germany's case, they were coming in, uh, by and large, as asylum seekers, whereas in Canada, they're going to be uh, majority, we believe, economic migrants. Well, even then, that's not necessarily a given, because who knows what the world is going to look like in 2025. But that is, a, that is a, a stat that I think more Canadians should be aware of. And you can just look at the headlines that came out of Germany in 2015 to see that there was some buyer's remorse. There was some buyer's remorse from a lot of Germans. I don't know if Angela Merkel was ever, you know, apologetic about it, but about what happened there. And what happens if you just let this idea of opening your doors and not thinking of the consequences become the driving force of your immigration policy.
We have a non-Canadian question, so if you've gotten through the last uh, 23 minutes, I thank you very much for it. Eric writes, Andrew and fellow club members, isn't the, or is the whole economy just a giant mirage that may well dissipate at any moment? What if FTX isn't an outlier at all? but just dumb enough to have gotten caught. While we in the real world produce value with our time and labor, are we doing it for a small amount of currency that the well-connected can conjure up by cooking their books than uh, borrowing through an opaque series of financial institutions? Also, any thoughts on our beloved and benevolent lords in Ofcom and formerly of Twitter? Well, I'll get to that one in a, a little bit, but your first question is a fascinating and I'll say terrifying one. And the FTX, like, I'm, I don't even know how I can give, like, a simple summary of, of the FTX thing. But basically, it was this, I, I, it wasn't a technical Ponzi scheme, but it was a complete shell game. It was this digital currency exchange where you could go on and you could buy and sell your digital assets, things like Bitcoin and Ethereum. And there's one, I don't know if it's, like, Dogcoin or Dogecoin or Dogecoin or all of these different things. And, and it was just a complete and utter collapse. People have lost their entire life savings because they had them there. It was headquartered in the Bahamas, which is always a, a sign of legitimacy for uh, financial exchanges, in my experience. And the founder, who was this, like, darling of the Democrats, he was, like, checking off all the boxes. The, the left loved him. He's, I think he's, like, 29 or 30 years old. He's done interviews since then. And when he's been asked by people about what happened and about people losing their money. He's just like smirked. Like he, he's had, there's no accountability. I don't know if there are ever going to be criminal exchanges on this or criminal charges on this. But what I can say is that there were a lot of people that thought they were investing in something and they were investing in nothing. And all of the important people with a capital I and a capital P were telling us that this was the next big thing. Now, I've got to be honest, I follow business news, but I had never heard of this thing before it collapsed. So I was, my, my life savings are such as they are, which is, I think they're probably in my pocket right now, but they were intact. And I, I don't know anyone that was personally affected by this, but a lot of people were. And it is fascinating. And I, I think a big part of it is that there's so much of an emphasis right now on not even just the get rich quick stuff, but on fads. Like people have always liked fads. There was the Easy Bake Oven, there were Pogs, there were Pokemon cards, there were Beanie Babies. But most people didn't view these fads as being a vessel for financial enrichment. They just enjoyed them a little bit and then they moved on from them. And I mean, you'll always find the stories of, you know, the person that spent, you know, a hundred thousand on Beanie Babies and then, you know, can't sell them or anything. But uh, this was, this is like the fatification of the economy, the fatification of people's well-being. And I apologize if you've never heard of these things, because I'm going to, you're right now living in this blissful state where I wish I hadn't heard of them. But there are these things called NFTs, and there, it stands for non-fungible token, and it's basically, I again, it's try, you're trying this like explaining this is stupid because you you realize when you're trying to verbalize it how stupid a thing it is, but they're basically like online things that exist only online, but they're one of a kind. So you could have a, a picture that is an NFT. There's only one of them, and people have paid millions of dollars for what are pixels on their screen, 
but oh, they're unique. Only they have them. And, you know, people have tried to resell them. And, and the bottom has already, to some extent, started to fall out from this. But like people, again, have just gotten themselves so hooked on this. And, you know, Bitcoins and these other cryptocurrencies, it's the same sort of thing. Now, now I have a little bit more of a tolerance for Bitcoin because I, I, I know it a bit better. And I understand it. And I, I also can see that there is an accountability baked into it. And uh, when a lot of the uh, banking accounts being frozen by Justin Trudeau business happened back in February of this year, a lot of people just said, okay, we have to get off the financial grid. We have to start using all of these alternatives. And I get that. But the problem is, is that when you're investing in something that you don't hold the keys to, that you don't back and, and can't back up, you are going to unfortunately go the way of some of these people that have had their life savings or huge amounts wiped out by, by FTX. But I guess that's the one bit of wisdom is, is don't buy the fads, you know, enjoy the fads. If you, if the fad brings you a bit of joy, uh, maybe you can ride it out for a bit, but don't, you know, invest your life savings in a fad. And uh, unfortunately there's this fatification of the economy. That's the best way I can describe it. Now, Chris writes, Hi, Andrew. It seems we have all suffered a long train of abuses and usurpations at the hands of the elites and the white coat supremacists. I quite, that, by the way, I actually love that. I don't know if that is a, a Chris Hall original or if you've stolen that from somewhere else, but I've not seen it before and I may uh, steal it with appropriate credit. The white coat supremacists. Uh, but if the general mood is anything to go by, we're not liable to do much about it. From the lying flat movement in China and the catastrophically low labor participation in the US, the reaction to having a uniparty, farcical elections, and a totally corrupt media, the reaction to all that is to sigh a collective meh. Although Trump's recent pronouncements about correcting past mistakes have been roundly and correctly criticized as being unconstitutional in the U.S., there is precious little ability to fix, or, uh, for, sorry, precious little ability to correct things within the Constitution. There are sadly plenty of ways to fix things, in quotation marks, as has been abundantly shown by scores of reports. The Westminster system has a loss of confidence mechanism, but we in the U.S. do not. Short of an Article 5 convention, which has no realistic chance of happening, it has been suggested that the peasants will have to get a lot more agitated before anything substantial happens. One might very well think so, but I could not possibly comment. Now, I'm not sure if to re I'm to read that in a British accent or a South Carolina accent, depending on uh, whether you're quoting uh, Francis Urquhart of the original House of Cards or Frank Underwood of the American remake. But I won't do either accent, but suffice it to say, I get and appreciate the reference. If I can sum up that question, it's basically we're screwed, aren't we? Like that's effectively the question. And, and it's hard to come up with an optimistic, cheery way to say no and to dismantle the premises that Chris very adequately laid out. And I think it's bigger than the U.S. And it's bigger than democracy in terms of the, the application of democracy or what's supposed to be democracy in, in countries around the world. Because basically you're talking about the powerlessness of the individual. And it used to be, and this goes back to the question earlier about solicitor-client privilege in Canada, in a way, because it used to be that governments were, at least in theory, at least ostensibly beholden to the people. And then there was an evolution of sort of pretending they were, and, and pretending that the people were in charge. And now that pretense has been abandoned, I think. 
And, and there is this idea that, no, 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 we know better than you. We know better than the people. And if, and if you're prepared to, as a figure in government, whether you're in the bureaucracy or the deep state or you're an elected politician, whatever it is, there is something about that that makes me ask, if you're prepared to say that you know better than the people on public health, or you know better than the people on what should be said or not said when it comes to censorship, or you know better than the people when it comes to whether they have to get vaccinated or not in, in vaccine mandates, what, what else are you prepared to say that to? And, you know, I, I can actually understand how you get logically from vaccine mandates or regulating internet speech to elections being irrelevant. Uh, because it's logical. If you're saying that the people don't know what's good for them, then why bother going through the charade of having an election? Why bother having people vote? Now, I mean, this is a, a radical and somewhat crazy thing to say, and I'm, I'm not proposing this. I'm actually warning against it because you are moving in this direction in a lot of different contexts where what people want doesn't matter because they don't have the right to make their own decisions. They don't have the right to make their own calls. They don't have the right to be in control of their own lives. And I don't exactly know what the next step is. And I, I wouldn't say that I necessarily know the way out of it, except to say that I'm noticing it. And I think other people need to notice it. And that is very much the first step. And it's not, I mean, lest I get accused of, you know, spreading misinformation or conspiracizing or whatever the verb is for that, I, I'm not talking about some shadowy cabal of people running the world. I'm talking about attitudes and, and just attitudes that right now are moving away from freedom and moving away from democracy and attitudes that are moving away from what we should be running towards and trying to hold on to at all costs, which is the ability to be in control of our own lives and then the ability to be in control of our own government. And when the government no longer has the consent to govern, it no longer has the consent of the governed, then what is it? What is it? It's running away. It's running away from us, this idea of control over our own lives. Alan writes, this is kind of related, will the deep state slash big media collusion and corruption be exposed and fully dealt with? Well, I don't know if there's one particular aspect of this you're asking about, Alan, or just a general question. If it's general, I can jump right into it. I, I think a little bit. You know, one example of this is, and I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself, I don't know if anyone is, has asked for it here, but uh, Twitter. So, Elon Musk has taken over Twitter, and, and he has certainly been okay being a disruptor. I, I might have mentioned it last week, but he's like laid off 75% of the workforce, and the company has continued to function, I'd say, better than it did before, which makes most people ask, well, what were those 75% of the workforce doing if it didn't actually uh, mean anything to get rid of them? But one of the big changes since I spoke about this on the Q&A last week is that he has orchestrated the release of the so-called Twitter files. And there have been two batches so far. One came out from uh, independent journalist Matt Taibbi, and the other came out uh, just yesterday, last night or this morning from Barry Weiss, who runs the Common Sense Substack. And the Barry Weiss one I find fascinating, not necessarily surprising, but fascinating. And the reason why is because what Barry Weiss has released 
in the Twitter files, and she's got receipts, as they say, she's got screenshots from this, is that Twitter maintained a secret blacklist, a secret blacklist of accounts that were not to be amplified and that were to be excluded from searches. So for example, uh, Jay Bhattacharya, who's been a, a Stanford physician, he's an expert. He's a, a white coat supremacist, in, uh, to use Chris Hall's term, uh, although not in attitude. But the thing about, uh, the thing about Jay Bhattacharya is that he is as mainstream as it gets as far as his credentials and his, uh, you know, resume, his CV, but not in his attitude, not in his perspective. He's been critical of the harms of lockdown. And Jay Bhattacharya has a tag on his Twitter account that Barry Weiss shared on the back end, you don't see it on the front end, called a trends blacklist, which means if his tweets are trending and that people are sharing them and engaging and interacting with them, Twitter is not to put him on their what's trending list that the public see that brings more attention to it. Then you look at Dan Bongino, who many of you may know, he's got a a show. He's got on the back end of his Twitter, search blacklist, which means that you are not to see him if you're searching for something unless you go directly to his profile. Charlie Kirk, conservative activist. I don't know Charlie, I just... I. He has never impressed me that much, but uh, maybe that's because he's on the do not amplify list. So his tweets are not to be amplified, whatever that means, as far as uh, Twitter is concerned. And this means, by the way, that when Twitter said in 2018 that it does not shadow ban, that shadow banning doesn't existing, exist, which is when you are not banned from tweeting, but they put all of these things in place that ban people from seeing your tweets or limit their ability to see your tweets. Twitter said that didn't exist. There's no such thing as Twitter banning. Well, the Twitter files confirm that they may not have quote-unquote shadow banning, but they have quote-unquote visibility filtering which is the exact same as shadow banning, but has a different name. And Twitter has been doing this. And they even have their little icons on their back end that show Twitter employees who look up an account what has happened to it. So Twitter lied. Twitter lied. When it said shadow banning didn't exist, Twitter was actually doing that very thing to people and overwhelmingly conservatives or those outside of the main liberal media government orthodoxy of the day, whatever that was. So Twitter controls what you see and what you do and what comes up when you search for people, even if you think you're getting an unfiltered result. And the reason I bring that up in response to your question, Alan, is because this has now been exposed. And this thing that people thought was happening, were pretty sure was happening, but didn't have proof of, we now have proof of. Now, maybe in the Twitter files, we'll find more of this collusion. We certainly saw from the first release of Twitter files by Matt Taibbi that the Bidens were in full communication. The Biden campaign was in full communication with Twitter about uh, suppressing the Hunter Biden laptop story. And that, again, we all knew must have been happening, but now we have a bit of proof to it. Now we have a bit of information providing 
And this is, I see Felicity has asked about this. She says, great guest hosting. I wanted to ask you if you think the revelations currently being made by journalists Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss about Twitter will actually amount to anything. We have known of social corruption for so long, but it seems that the left is really untouchable even here in America. What do you think? Well, exposing it is the first step. And I think that is so key here. Now, what people do with this information is anyone's guess. There was another Elon Musk tweet that came out today, which was kind of interesting. Elon Musk has like kind of filled the void left by Donald Trump as being the one that you want to follow just to see what's happening here. But Elon said that Twitter is working on a software update that will show you your true account status. So you will know clearly if you've been shadow banned, the reason why and how to appeal. So what Elon is doing is unmasking that Twitter opaque visibility filtering shadow banning process so that you as a user will be able to see if that's happened to you. And I think that is key. Now, if now some people, this was the old line that some people were, were shadow banned or thought they were shadow banned, but really they were just unpopular and people didn't like about their tweets. So I think you're still going to have some suspicion if like no one's engaging with a tweet that you think is a really good one. Uh, you're going to be like, I'm shadow banned. And be like, no, you're just an idiot. But the, the interesting thing about this is that Elon Musk is democratizing Twitter. And it, it's just Twitter. It's not real life. It's as far from real life as one could imagine. But the reason it's important is because it took a billionaire disruptor to come in and buy his way in. And he basically had to kick down the door to get in and take this thing over. But he actually trumped Twitter in a way. He, he, did, for, he did for Twitter what Donald Trump did for the Republican Party and for the United States, in which he just, he just like barged through like the Kool-Aid man breaking through the wall and has said, okay, we're going to expose this. We're going to do this. We're going to put our money where our mouth is and we're going to do this. And if Twitter becomes what he says it's going to become, which is a place where you can actually speak freely and a place where you have to compete for eyes and compete for attention, and you can't just be artificially amplified into relevance, then I think it will be a very good thing. And I think it'll actually present a model for other places. I, I think, you know, Facebook, for example, will have to start getting very worried if Twitter is the place that is the place where free speech is happening and Facebook isn't. And Facebook will have to say, uh-oh, like, are, are we comfortable? Are we comfortable with this? Because people just won't use Twitter or the people that will are a very specific type of person that most of us probably don't want anything to do with in the first place. Elisa writes, what, uh, Andrew, what's the news out of Brazil with the election there and the stories about people marching in the streets, contesting the results? There are reports of executions. Do you know what's going on there? Uh, similar question, uh, what's happening in Peru? The former Peruvian president was impeached and jailed. The vice president was sworn in immediately after her predecessor's removal, making her the fifth Peruvian president in five in the last six years. Should we pay more attention to what's happening in our southern hemisphere? Well, I can't say yes, because I would be a hypocritical for not paying as close attention as, as you have on that. I, I, the Peru thing is interesting. And, and yeah, you're right. They have been cycling through presidents. I think they actually have had more than Israel as far as individual heads of government. But I think Israel still wins for having had more elections. So take from that what you will. I know Mexico is uh, considering asylum for Peru's impeach president. So there's a little bit of an old boys club in Peru or in uh, Latin America right now. The Brazil one I find a little bit odd. Now, 
I saw what you had seen, uh, Elisa, online at one point, which was, you know, there was supposedly some uh, mass chaos taking place on the streets of Brazil. And then I went and looked it up in uh, some uh, international outlets and there was no such report of anything like that. And then, you know, the, the fact checkers come along and say, oh, you know, people have been reporting that stuff is happening in Brazil that's not actually happening. And the long and short of it is I, I don't know. I, I think that there was some... I hate using the term now because it's kind of been ruined. I think there was some actual fake news circulating about Brazil. And, and one of the big things that was going around is this idea that there is a coup underway uh, when it doesn't sound like there is. It sounds like there is a transition, but there's kind of like a, a QAnon type thing happening uh, in Brazil or or with people that are following the Brazil thing where they're talking about this election result uh, that took place with uh, Lula uh, beating uh, Bolsonaro and they're talking about, you know, it's not going to change and it's not going to happen and the, the transition's not going to happen. But uh, we heard that in 2021 with the U.S. election and Joe Biden eventually took his seat without Q showing up on horseback to save the day or anything like that. So I think there's something to that effect happening with Brazil as well. But again, I do not consider myself uh, an expert uh, in, in that by any stretch. Uh, Mary writes, hi, Andrew. Great job filling in for Mark. Thank you. My question for you. Oh, I, fi I knew this was going to come, and I even mentioned it in the post announcing the show, just to preempt it. What do you make of the Harry and Meghan documentary? So I have decided, actually, to respect Harry and Meghan's wishes in that they wanted their privacy so I have to respect their privacy, not watch this thing. Uh, and also because I would rather have a Canadian state sanctioned assisted suicide than have to watch two hours of that. Um, although I shouldn't say, I shouldn't even joke about that because I, I think you joke about it and they, the government actually shows up and kills you in Canada now. It's so widespread. But no, I, I've read some of the coverage and I've seen some of the clips about this thing. And it's amazing how Meghan Markle has had more success as Prince Harry's wife than she ever had as an actress and still manages to believe that she's become a victim of everything and everyone. She's a victim of racism. She's a victim of the royal family. She's a victim of the media. And yet somehow she's doing better than she was before anyone had heard of her. And it's, I mean, it's, it's about falling upward, really, because she has done so well for herself with this. And I mean, I don't blame her for ruining the royal family. I blame Harry and her together. They're they're a team. Uh, and I I think Meghan and Harry Markle is probably a better way to describe the two than the the Sussexes. But the thing about this is that like she talks about how ungrateful and how rude and how mean and how racist everyone was. Someone just tweeted out a moment before I went on a picture of all of the people lining the streets to get a glimpse of her on her way to the chapel on her wedding day. And all of the Britons that actually, and Canadians as well, that opened up their arms to her and welcomed her. And she says, oh, no, no, no. She was a victim of racism. And the royal family, which was very kind and very gracious to her. And she actually, there was a clip circulating of her like mocking the queen. And I don't know when it was recorded and I don't really care, but mocking the queen. And she's wondering why this family and like mocking the royal protocol and the etiquette and all of that. And, you know, I look at this woman and I, I say, how deluded, how deluded are you to think that you have suffered 
through this when everything that has happened to you, you have brought on yourself and, and you've disrupted an institution that has survived far worse than you and thankfully will outlast her. It'll outlast all of us. And that's why the traditionalist view of the monarchy is, I think, so important. And I, it's just so baffling to me. And I, I know that it was, uh, if you watch Mark Dolan uh, filling in for Mark Stein last night, he, he, he went uh, completely into it because people are talking about it. But all the people talking about it are talking about it in the very wrong way. So uh, you know what? If uh, Canadian content laws mean that I don't have to see that on my Netflix home screen, maybe that will be a win after all for this. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment here. I want to share a little message for you from Mark. This is Mark Stein. After three years in COVID Stan, it's time to get out of town. So join me on the 2023 Mark Stein cruise sailing from Italy to Croatia, Montenegro, Greece for a full week of sun, sea and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Australia, Britain, Europe. And we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein show and Stein Online, but close up and on water. More details at SteinOnline.com or MarkSteinCruise.com. Yes, the Mark Stein cruise coming up in July, July 7th to 14th. We are departing from Trieste. We are sailing down the Adriatic. We're stopping in Montenegro. We are stopping in Croatia. We are stopping in uh, Greece and uh, heading back to Italy. And not, as Mark uh, had to remind people, stopping in Albania to pick up any migrants. They will have to make their own way to the UK, which they seem to be having a fine time doing as it is. That is going to be a lot of fun. I am going to be on the cruise, but don't let that discourage you because uh, Ava Vlardingerbrook and Alexandra Marshall and Bo Snerdly, Tal Bachman, Michelle Bachman, John O'Sullivan. I think that's everyone. If I'm missing someone, I forget. But anyway, they're all going to be on there. And Mark, yes, Mark Stein is going to be there. I forgot Mark. Um, I think you can get the whole list at MarkSteinCruise.com. And it is always a great time. And especially after the last three years where it's basically been illegal to be face-to-face -face in a room with people, I think it's going to be a fantastic experience, even better than the last two. So I hope to see some of you out there. And I know some of the people in the questions, notably Chris Hall, I have met on Mark Stein Cruises in the past. So hopefully you will be back on this one. And let's uh, continue along here. A uh, question from Mr. J, who writes, your show has dealt with the looming consequences of the Great Reset and how it may impose a sort of green Stalinism on us. Well, if the public is consulted by referendum on such vital things as constitutions, why not for the far-reaching green five-year plans of the Davos crowd? I, I must say, I sort of dispute the idea that the public is consulted by referendums on on meaningful things. I, I think most constitutional uh, changes these days aren't really happening because, you know, constitutions are, are typically uh, baked into such an extent that you know, changing it is very difficult and you, and you don't want it to be easy to change a constitution. And I think when you're talking about the referenda that we have in, I mean, in Canada, they're basically non-existent. Switzerland has them to some degree. And I know ballot initiatives in the U.S., but, but oftentimes these things don't really change anything of substance. They're on very specific, very niche things. And I would love to see referenda on the big picture questions. I would love to see referenda because so many of these individual policy propositions and proposals that you get from a government 
are part of a larger agenda that they're pursuing that no one actually bought into. I, I mean, I look at the Paris Climate Accord of 2015, which has, I think, done more damage to Western countries than most other international treaties of late. And the Paris Climate Accord itself didn't do all that much. It was an agreement to a set of goals, not a set of policies. But then that is used as the template by governments that want to go along with all of that and the justification to do all these very dangerous policies. So in Canada, we get a carbon tax because, oh, it's necessary to meet our Paris climate target. And we get this policy that's going after the oil and gas sector because, oh, oh, oh the Paris target. And then they re-up that in Glasgow last year, I think it was. And then this year they meet for the Charmel shakedown. And it's the same sort of thing. And the next one that I'm looking at is the World Health Organization's uh, updated international health regulations, which they're transitioning into some treaty of sorts, and it hasn't been signed just yet or drafted. But all of this stuff is, is tremendously important, and it's not because the policies in this thing will be as dangerous as what governments use those treaties and that treaty language to justify and already at the WHO a few weeks ago, there was this agreement by countries on a global vaccine passport of some kind. And, you know, if you talk to government officials about it, they'll be like, oh, no, no, no. It's just about like making sure that international standards are there so that, you know, your vaccine passport in Canada will be recognized when you want to go to Albania or your Albanian vaccine passport when you want to go to uh, Paris or whatever it is. And I mean, I don't quite buy into that, but they always like to say that these things are simultaneously critical and of the utmost significance while being, oh, but it's just non-binding. Oh, don't worry about it. Oh, if you think this is going to be mean that much, you're a conspiracy theorist. And it's like the Global Compact for Migration was something that came out a few years ago. And a lot of people, myself included, were very critical of it. It was being pushed by Louise Arbour at the United Nations. The Global Compact for Migration, we were told, was just non-binding. It was symbolic. And anytime we criticized it as calling for basically open borders, they said, oh, you're just a conspiracy theorist. Well, let's go back to that topic I said near the beginning of the show about immigration in Canada. 500,000 immigrants, more than 1% of the population every year, by 2025. Now, this is not something that the Global Compact for Migration called for, but it's something that a government that eagerly and enthusiastically signed on to that compact is calling for. And that is more dangerous. So I, I think that I, I've gotten a little bit far afield from Mr. J's original question here about the Great Reset and about the green plans and all that, but the, the problem is not the individual manifestations of these. And I, I think I agree with the questioner that the problem is the plans themselves. And these are the things that Canadians are oftentimes not paying attention to. And, you know, for anyone who says The Great Reset is a conspiracy theory, it's, well, just read the book by Klaus Schwab called The Great Reset. Listen to the speech by Klaus Schwab called The Great Reset. Watch the minutes of the conference he hosted called The Great Reset. I, like, the, to say it's a conspiracy theory is like the greatest display of gaslighting in the history of the world because these things are literally, in their own words, front and center, right there. And we're not allowed to talk about them. And we're certainly not allowed to vote on them. Uh, we have a question here from Gregory Lawton. Now, this, this is the alternative spelling of Lawton with a G-H. Uh, Gregory writes, what's going on in Canada? 
A disabled woman requests installation of a chairlift from the health service and their reply, well, perhaps you should consider taking advantage of the assisted suicide law. Has this country gone nuts? Uh, Ian, a couple of questions on this, actually. Ian says uh, Canada is becoming the euthanasia capital of the world. How on earth did this happen? And can we learn anything from this tragedy to stop it coming to my country, the UK? And Niall writes, uh, Andrew, my friend, what on earth is happening in Canada with all this assisted uh, death stuff? Is it really to help people or is it a way to call the population? What do you make of this? It is freaking me out. So I saw something a few moments before I started this show from Kate Smythe, who is a, a Mark Stein club member. And Kate quoted Malcolm uh, Muggeridge uh, in a debate in the 70s as saying, and I hadn't heard this quote, and I may have pronounced his name incorrectly. I apologize for that. But the quote is, it takes about 30 years in our humane society to transform a war crime into an act of compassion. And that, I, I'm going to have to think about that a lot more because I, I think there's a lot of truth to that, that yesterday's war crime is today's act of compassion. I mean, the idea of euthanasia, which used to be just this horrific thing, is now being seen as entirely justifiable and actually it as being horrific to not do it. Horrific to not do it. That is the real crime. There was in Quebec just the other day, maybe it was a couple of weeks ago, actually. I'm bad when I say the other day. There was a, a Quebec physician who testified that euthanasia for disabled infants, severely disabled infants, was justifiable. And he was just testifying matter-of-factly that if there's a, an infant that's born, they weren't aborted, but they're born, they have a severe deformity, a severe uh, disability of some kind with a grim prognosis, that it would be justified to terminate them while they are alive. So what is that? Like a, a ninth trimester abortion, perhaps, a fifth trimester abortion, that that is apparently allowed. So this idea of euthanasia as being just a way to exit from the world a little bit early, if you're already on a road where you've got a, a terrible disease like ALS or MS, and now it's something that we can do to living children just because they have what some Quebec doctor testifying on a parliamentary committee says is uh, a terrible illness. And by the way, it's not just a one-off. There is that, that doctor was representing the Quebec College of Physicians. I think that's an important point. So th this is actually, in his view, what medical policy should be, at least in Quebec and possibly beyond. There was a department store chain called Simons, which a couple of months ago released this very bizarre ad that you may have seen because it, it ended up going uh, quite global online. It was an ad glorifying this woman's decision to end her life. And Simons actually gave this woman a bunch of experiences. They brought her family together to have a little beach party. They were doing all this stuff. And it was this, they chronicled this. They filmed it. They filmed this woman's last weeks or months as she decided that she was going to go out on her terms. And you watch this and you think, wow, what a bizarre decision. Why is a department store getting involved in this? Uh, you get, in my case, sad. Why did the woman do this and go down this road? And you continue to follow this story a little bit. The woman died recently. She went through the process, ended her life. And then a journalist who had spoken to her, 
who's a mainstream media journalist, by the way, not one of these, you know, evil pro-life conservative types like me. She tweets that now that this woman has passed away, I can share that she actually was the one in this story that she had written, this person that, that was trying to get better supports to live. So the woman that is held up as being this example of going out on your own terms, of uh, living life to the fullest before you end it because you have a terrible disease, and I can't remember what the disease is offhand, was actually a woman that was seeking a better life first. And it was her inability to get that, her inability to navigate the system that ultimately resulted in her deciding to end her life. And then a department store tried to capitalize off of that. And I think it's blown up in their faces largely. But this is happening more and more in Canada where you have people who are not actually interested in ending their lives, but they feel they have no options because the healthcare system in this country is failing to give them the things they need to actually live the life they want and the life that's promised. So this thing that is supposed to be a last resort this thing is supposed that's supposed to be a last resort is becoming just one option of many where you call up the public health line in Saskatchewan and it's, you know, press one if you have ingested poison, press two if you want information about STDs, uh, press three if you're looking for the government's help in killing yourself. And we are told this is health care and not barbarism. Uh, I know it's not a cheery note to end on, but I think it is an important one. So I thank you for the question. I thank all of you for the questions. And I assure you, Mark, will be back before long, but thank you so much for indulging me in my uh, attempt at guest hosting your senior uh, deputy assistant under secretary, vice president of Canadian affairs or whatever it is. Signing out. Have a great weekend.
Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.